This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Mimi Kwa, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. Mimi's in Melbourne, and as you all know, I'm in Sydney. Mimi's been a journalist for over 20 years. She has worked as a news anchor and reporter for Channel 9 and the ABC. She has also worked on TV commercials and as a speaking mentor and coach. Her first book is House of Kwa, a sweeping memoir covering four generations of her family history from Hong Kong to Australia. Really, I mean, very honest. <laughs> I'm trying to describe it up front, and I don't think you hit anything. It has been called um, warts and all. <laughs> oh, it has. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about it. Well, it really um, starts in the imperial compound in Beijing, um, where my great-grandfather lived with his multiple wives. Looking back over the, the family tree, it is impossible to even know how many wives he had because only the wives that bore him a son were even recorded in the family tree, which I just find uh, not surprising, but it's still extraordinary to research a family history in that way and to see how women were excluded from, you know, any reference. Uh, so, yes, it starts in the family compound, in the imperial compound and family compound in Beijing, and then it follows the trajectory of my grandfather's story. So he's one of the one of dozens of children of my great-grandfather, and he flees the, the family compound and he travels down south through China uh, to Swatow. The family, um, you should know, are, are silk traders and this is at a time of um, the opium boom as well and, and by the same roads that um, silk went in China, so did opium. So I don't I don't say, I don't think that my family were opium traders, but I don't know. My father is vehemently sure that they weren't. He said that his father, um, you know, really hated people that were addicted to opium, but who knows, it was very prolific at that time. Anyway, my great-grandfather made his way down to Swatow and he was told by a monk, um, so he married his first child bride, first of a few brides that he went on to acquire, in inverted commas, and he was told by a monk and a shaman that he would never have any children. And bear in mind that his first bride was about 14 years old and he was told he wouldn't have any children, so he adopted his first child. And the story goes on from there to basically reveal that he ends up having 32 children. Mm. And the family then moves to Hong Kong and 
the story really explores, and I was fascinated to research this, really explores the Second World War and the Japanese occupation of Hong Kong for three years and eight months. And my dad had often referred to that occupation when I was growing up, but he never gave any details. And it wasn't something that in a Western school in Australia that I learned much about. We learned about the European experience of the Second World War, but not really about the Asian experience and particularly not about Hong Kong's experience in the Second World War. So it was a real revelation to me to research the history of Hong Kong and to put pieces of the puzzle together, um, pieces that my father had revealed over the years to me and that my aunts, um, his sisters had revealed over the years to me and then sort of tessellate that together with the actual, you know, facts about Hong Kong during the Second World War that, that we know that are in, you know, the textbooks and the history books and to work out what their experience must have been. And it was extraordinary. I mean, to... To basically be, I mean, we we're all experiencing a degree of lockdown at the moment, but to essentially be in wartime wartime lockdown for three years and eight months, the schools were closed. Um, you know, civilians were being bayoneted in the streets, and mm. um, it was horrific. And to add to that, the Allies, um, the British in particular were bombing Hong Kong, friendly fire, again, in inverted commas, bombing Hong Kong to rid Hong Kong of the invaders. So not only did the local Hong Kong populace and also the expat populace who'd been put into camps in Hong Kong during the Japanese occupation, not only did they have to endure the occupation of the Japanese, but they also had to endure bombing by the Allies to try to eject the Japanese. So just extraordinary experiences. From there, my family somehow um, rebuilds itself, much to um, to the credit of my auntie, Teresa. She became the world's first Chinese air hostess for BOAC, which is now known as British Airways. Yeah, and wow. She just had an extraordinary life. I mean, she rubbed shoulders with... Um, nobility with royalty, princes, princesses, um, dukes, duchesses, um, prime ministers and their wives. And the stories that she would tell me and the, and the stories that I've uncovered just through her news clippings, she just kept incredible scrapbooks of her life. And her story, her story in itself was a fairy tale. And so she paid for my father, her brother, to come to Australia to study. And, and so that's um, really where my story or my more direct story begins, where my dad sets foot in Australia. He, he studies down in Geelong and he makes his way over to Perth and then I'm born. He met your mother here? He did. He met my mother in Perth. They were bushwalking. Um, he tripped over a log and she helped him up. Yeah. And then nine months later... <laughs> I was born. Mm. <laughs> it's an extraordinary story because it covers a lot of ground and a lot of history, but you still maintain that emotional thread that it is a personal memoir, even though in a way it's also a historical memoir. It's true. I, it's personal because the reason that I began to write the story in the first place is because my father sued me in the Supreme Court 
Mm. And I... Do you know, I had to read that twice. (laughs) I had to say, uh, I think I've got somebody's done a cut and paste job. This is not right. And then did my own research and realised that that was the truth. Yeah, Yeah, well, that alone is extraordinary, isn't it? Father Sue's daughter. And, of course, there are... Did you see that coming? I didn't. I didn't see it coming. He has a a history of um, serial litigancy against all sorts of people, you know, everybody from, you know, Mogadon or Baraka for keeping him awake or not um, <laughs> not waking him up enough, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, he's been prolific in the courtroom, put it this way, and that really was his stomping ground and the magistrate's court, the Supreme Court, even the High Court, he was the first person since Eddie Marbo to represent himself in the High Court of Australia. And so, you know, all credit to my dad, kudos to him. You know, he really did the hard work to learn um, and he's not a lawyer, although he calls himself a lawyer, <laughs> but he really did the hard work to, to navigate his way through Australia's legal system as a migrant and certainly had some successes and some, you know, not so successful lawsuits, but I didn't see it happening to me. I used to proofread his legal documents from when, you know, from when I could read and and when I was even, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, he would come in and ask me to proofread his legal documents because my English was better than his and he knew that I could apply grammatical corrections to his documents. And then as I got older, I was actually even adding to his legal arguments because I'd sort of had the, the presence of mind and I guess the maturity by then to say, oh, Dad had we thought about this. So I was like his assistant, his apprentice, and really all of that training that he gave me, I could never have imagined that that was setting me up to fight him in court. So I just want to talk about that. So were you estranged at the time? We were for a short period, but not really. He was he was very, you really need to read the book, which you have to understand the the nuances and the complexities of it all. But to try to simplify it, essentially, he was sort of clandestinely undertaking all of the this legal work behind my back that I didn't know about, whilst still staying in contact with me over the estate of my late Auntie Teresa, who I mentioned was the air hostess and funded his... um, education here. And she died and left her belongings to you. That's right. That's right. To me and and to other people in the family. But my dad, God love him, wholeheartedly believed that as the senior Chinese male in the family, that everything belonged to him. And really, it was about power. It wasn't about the possessions. Mm -hmm. Um, He'll tell you that it was about the possessions. But I know from having excavated my family history now and having done the work to, to heal myself by really looking at my family story, I know that it was about power. I know that, you know, we talked before about the inherited, well, we didn't touch on it specifically, but inherited trauma, I think is a big part of a lot of our stories, particularly migrant stories. And essentially we're all migrants or we all hail from migrants at some point. And so looking at my family story and going back in history to my great grandfather, 
my grandfather, my father, and looking at what their experiences had been, particularly the war in Hong Kong and how that really must have affected my father during his formative years when he was, you know, six, seven, eight years old, that really helped me understand who my father was and how he became the sort of man who would sue his own daughter. And that to me was really so important in my coming to terms with what was going on and understanding how inherited trauma can affect us all. Do you know what I thought? Uh, Because I'm a child of immigrants as well. My parents are Lebanese, Australian, and they came to Australia in the 50s. And my dad had a very hard time. And I think it was because you go from being holding some kind of leadership role in your community. I mean, he came from a a small village in Lebanon. It's not like he was in Beirut. But you come from being heard and respected in your own country and then you're an immigrant who has no voice completely, can't speak the language, no respect, you know, people calling you names. I mean, we endured so much racism, as I'm sure you would have. And I think that caused an anger, you know, that created an anger in my father that he actually never let go. And I didn't understand it at the time, but I understand it now and I saw that in your book as well. I think that sort of wisdom and insight does come with age and comes with that opportunity to have the space to be introspective and, and to really have the time to look at the family history. I mean, I think myself in my 20s, even in my 30s, I was so busy. I was just living your life. I was just living my life, having children, earlier than that, studying, all of those things. And I wasn't really thinking about the impact of the family history on mine and my father's relationship, on his psyche, on his mental health and wellbeing, on my mental health and wellbeing. You just sort of get on with it. And I think a lot of us do that. And so I feel very happy and grateful. It sounds crazy to say this, but I feel very grateful that Um, my dad did sue me and that Mm. it did cause a breakdown to break through so that I did write this book and so that I I have been able to share the story with others who will on some level relate to my own journey. And I think it's a common journey. Not all of it culminates in being sued by your parent, but I think the behaviours are very common in immigrants, in, in particularly a lot of the men that I see and a lot of the men that I see and that I know. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I want to talk about how you came to writing. I want to go back. So you were educated in Melbourne, 
how did your career trajectory go? Well, um, I was actually educated in Perth. So uh, I'm a okay. Perth girl right. and I, uh, I basically grew up with a, uh, when I was maybe four or five, I had a little black and white tiny television set in the corner of my room and I was watching news and things that I probably should not have been watching at that age or probably were you know wasn't really um, age appropriate but I developed sort of an addiction to news and a fascination with it and from a very young age I remember seeing a woman who was not Caucasian and of course being a woman she was not a man and I saw this woman on screen and her name was Yana Bent Oh, yeah. And I thought, wow, maybe I could do that. Yeah. And from there, it just grew this seed of, I guess, passion for storytelling, for news, for, you know, like I used to watch the 60 Minutes team in, you know, war-torn countries and far-flung areas on the planet, interviewing prime ministers, interviewing superstars, just living this extraordinary life and taking me as a little girl places that I, I never dreamed existed. And so with, with that and with the power of books and reading from when I was very young and I could read from I think the age of three, my mum taught me very early to, to read and just that love of storytelling really drove me towards journalism. But I went off track in the meantime because my, my father was very adamant he wanted me to be a lawyer, probably to assist him in court. Yes. <laughs> and it was almost that tiger parent Chinese family, you know, um, that's typified by, oh, you must be a lawyer, you must be a doctor. That's right. Uh, Got to be vocational. Uh, that's that's yeah. right. And then but instead I went into architecture because wow. I, you know, I was creative yeah. and it, there was an element of, um, you know, job stability at the end potentially. Yeah. Uh, so I went into architecture, but I wasn't great at architecture, to be honest. And meantime, all I wanted to do was write stories. So my part-time jobs were with the Fremantle Herald, which is um, a newspaper in Perth, and then Express Magazine, which was another street magazine. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And that, um, and I used to do band reviews and, and nightclub reviews and things when I was at uni. And I loved that. And I loved the writing. And yet I was still studying architecture. And when I, when I finished my undergraduate degree, I decided that I needed something more. So I went to the Academy of Performing Arts, WA Academy of Performing Arts, WAPA, yeah. um, you know, where the likes of um, the late Heath Ledger attended. And yes. I did broadcasting at WAPA. And the very lucky thing was, is that we broadcasting students got the same voice coaches um, and some of the same uh, tutors and teachers as the performing arts students, which was just wonderful. So I had a great foray into broadcasting through the academy. And then from there, I actually, I think what really changed my life, there are lots of things along the way that changed my life, of course, lots of sliding door moments, but the really pivotal moment in my life was when I got a cadetship with the ABC, with our yeah. national broadcaster. So I went for this cadetship. I was one of 3,200 people who applied. I'll never forget that figure. Wow. And 
that number was whittled down to a few hundred people who all sat an exam Australia-wide in different states around Australia. We all had to sit down at the same time and sit this exam. And I remember in Perth sitting the exam, they hadn't really thought about, you know, the, the time difference. So it was quite early that we had to sit this exam in Perth and go to, I think it was a, a high school or a university, and it was set out properly, like, a, you know, proper um, TE or VCE, yeah. HSC, HSC exam. And so sat this three-hour exam and then from those hundreds of people, it was whittled down to 20 people. And then 20 of us from around Australia um, were flown to Sydney for an interview with Jennifer Byrne, George Negus, you know, just some amazing (laughs) people. So I had this panel of people interviewing me and I was just in absolute or and every step of the way, I thought, as most of us do with the self-doubt that we all possess from time to time, I thought, I'm not going to get through to the next step, but I'm just so grateful that I've got to this stage. Yeah. And then I kept going through. And then I actually thought after that, oh, well, that's great. I, you know, I, I got to go to Sydney. I'd never been to Sydney before. Got to meet these amazing people. You know, at least I got this far. And so then I moved to Malaysia with my then boyfriend, now husband of 28 years and so we were living in KL and um and I I remember thinking oh I've got to go back to Perth to you know clean up my you know my cupboards and clear out my room take my old school uniform back to the old uniform shop so so I came back down to Perth and I thought well I haven't heard from the ABC so obviously I didn't get through that's fine I'll just move on with my life I'll go for a job in in Malaysia And then I was at my old school at St Mary's in Perth and I was returning my old uniform and I got a call on my tiny little red Nokia mobile phone and it was a woman called Heather from the ABC and she called me and she said, are you sitting down? And and I said, no, but I'll sit down. So I sat on the grass oval (laughs) um, of my old high school and she said, we would like to offer you an ABC cadetship and how do you feel about moving to Melbourne? And I just remember just lying back on that grass and looking at the clouds pass over me and just thinking to myself, wow, my life has just changed. I feel like crying just thinking of that moment because without that moment, I would never be here telling my story. I would never have had the opportunity to work with such incredible colleagues at the ABC and at Channel 9 and all the other networks and all the other broadcasting organisations that I have. And I would never have nurtured my storytelling talent and skills to the point that I would become an author. So that moment was the life-changing moment. Well, now you're making me cry. (laughs) But also, too, these, they are sliding door moments, they are opportunities, but you need to have the talent and you obviously have the talent. Thank you. I think that comes from the reading when I was young and I think that just comes from the trajectory of opportunities that I took along the way. I remember when I worked at the Fremantle Herald, I was thrilled to be able to write an advertorial. You know, if a local cafe was advertising in the, you know, this weekly local rag, I got to go and, you know, 
taste their bacon and eggs and write a, do a little write-up on them. I mean, yeah. that was just such a thrill for me. And I look back on those memories so fondly and every story I've done, I've just thrown my heart and soul into it. It doesn't matter whether, you know, I'm interviewing Serena Williams or Russell Crowe or whether I'm interviewing the cafe owner down the street. I just think stories are stories and they need to be told and you never know who they are going to reach. I've I've received some amazing and profound, very moving emails from people, messages from people who have read my book, and I'm just blown away by how stories and how my story has affected some people and, mm. and how it's helped. And it just reminds me every message I get and every day that I reflect on that, why I do what I do and why storytelling and why all of our contribu- contributions to this storytelling industry, which is the book world, why all of those contributions are Mm, and that it matters. The power of story, I, I mean, you know, obviously it's universal and it's been around for a very long time. However, I feel that in COVID, in a pandemic where people are really suffering all sorts of stresses and anxiety and worrying about the future and where are we, the story has been there as an escape, as you know, as a tool for empathy, as for me, uh, I'm so, you know, well off compared to a lot of people, meaning, you know, that I've got a good life and, you know, I've got a dog and I walk in the park and whatever. But, you know, and sometimes I feel been locked down for three months and I thinking, oh, how much more can I endure? And then I read a book or a story or a memoir and you realise that there are so many people that have endured so much more than you have. And I feel for me, that's really important. That's one of the reasons why I like reading is I like to know other people's stories, how other people have handled adversity, how other people hand, handle love or joy or whatever. It's just such a powerful tool and, and books are that, I think, and that's why they've survived. Yeah, and just I, living a moment in somebody else's right. shoes by reading their story, you you cannot quantify how much um, good that can can really do and how much that can expand somebody's mind or that experience. Yeah, I was speaking to Trent Dalton, who's a great friend of Better Readings, and he he and I, I think it was during our first podcast, he said, Cheryl, every connection, because, you know, as you know, he was a journalist before he started writing, he said, every connection I've had with the book industry, and you and I spoke about that just before we started recording, but it's not just the people I'm working with, it's the readers, like everybody seems to be really nice. And, you know, we see that on our Facebook page. We don't get trolled. The messages are usually encouraged whether they've liked the book or not. And I really do think it's because readers have empathy and that's what Trent and I spoke about because they understand other people. They have read and heard other people's stories. Well, Trent is just the nicest of them all. Isn't he? I didn't know Trent personally. I, of course, knew of him and I'd read Boys Follows Universe and you may have noticed that his name is on the front cover of my book. And I thought... I'm just going to reach out to him and see if he would like to read my story because Boy Swallows Universe was really instrumental in inspiring me to keep going with telling my story because there were times when, as a writer, many writers will relate to this, I felt like giving up. I felt like throwing in the towel. It was too hard, particularly bringing up childhood traumas 
family traumas. It was really, it was, it was rough going, certainly worth it in the end, but when I was in it, it was very difficult at times. And reading Trent's story and knowing that what had been quoted in the media as being 50% of his story was was true. Oh, he and, talks and about that. On, yeah. yeah. And 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 based on his true story, it really encouraged me and it really inspired me. So I reached out to him and also because, of course, he's had this journalist experience. and he's Similar a background. Yeah. That's right, very similar background and I thought, wow, I, it just resonated with me so much. So I reached out to him and I didn't hear anything back and I don't know if, if um, you you would know but I don't know if all your listeners know that as, a, as an author and particularly a first-time author, it's really up to you to reach out to the people who you think your book will resonate with, who you would like to endorse your story and you're not really given any help from your publisher or, or from publicity to do this. It's sort of down to you and your own connections and, and your own tenacity to do that. So anyway, I reached out of my own accord to Trent and, uh, and I didn't hear anything back and I thought, okay, well, I tried. You know, I reached out to a yeah. few people, a few authors that I really admired and and that who I would really love to read my work, but I thought that's, that's fine. He doesn't know me. Anyway, a week later I was actually in quarantine in Perth for my brother's wedding because um, we travelled over there from Melbourne at a time when we could travel. And I was in quarantine. I was waking up at five o'clock in the morning every morning with my two daughters. They were bridesmaids at the wedding and they had to wake up at five in the morning to check into school in Melbourne because of the time difference. So they were doing remote learning. And I woke up at five in the morning and ping, there was an email from Trent. And he said, Mimi, I've been trying to ignore your email all week. (laughs) I just love it. He said, I've got no time, but just send me the book. And yeah. it was just the most wonderful. I yeah. cried. I burst yeah. into tears. I looked to the heavens and I just said, thank you, universe, because yeah. however it happened, um, it was just such a, a wonderful thing to transpire because I think Trent's work just connects with so many people and knowing that he was happy to read my story and then read my story and really enjoyed and loved my story, I mean, what better endorsement could an author ever wish for to be able to help put their book and their work in the hands of readers? Oh, it's extraordinary. Hey, listen, we've run out of time, Amy. I mean, we can oh, talk forever. I feel like we haven't even talked about anything yet. Oh, my goodness. It happens. But thank you so much for your time today. I have really enjoyed our chat. Um, it's a wonderful book. It's called House of Qua and it's out now. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, 
and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.